Good morning. It's a real privilege that we get to gather together <coughs> and worship corporately. It was a sweet time. We're actually going to be talking about worshiping together corporately and singing of God's greatness. Uh, it was very um, appropriate. Uh, this morning, uh, Steve was going to be up here. His family had a pretty crazy week, the Roberts family. Uh, as it all turned out, they, had, they actually had two family members in the same hospital having surgery on the same day. Is that right? One coming from halfway across the world. And so, uh, but everything is going well. So we have great reason, as I know many of you have been uh, praying that God would provide for them. We have great reason this morning to thank God for what he's done this week uh, in their family. I think Titus is actually worshiping with us this morning um, as his staff. So uh, it's great to have you. Um, Also, the McGraws are going to be heading home from their uh, 30 days of living out of a van. I talked to Ben last night, and he said that he, uh, he vacuumed out the van for the first time since the trip started last night, <laughs> and he said it was amazing the things that will build up with you know, three kids living out of a van for about a month, so they're excited to come and live out of a, uh, a house again, and so we need to pray for them as they're on their way back. They're enjoying some time with the uh, Collins family in Lubbock these last few days, so uh, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. God, we count it, again, a, a great privilege to be here this morning. Uh, much of what we're talking about this morning, God, is, is going to be a reminder, you know, stirring one another up by way of reminder. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for uh, the things you've done this week uh, in the Roberts family. As, um, it was shaping up at the beginning of the week to just be one of the craziest weeks ever, and it definitely was crazy for them, but um, God, you are so good, and I thank you for what you've done and, and letting uh, uh, uh each family member uh, be doing well at this point in time. Got to pray for the McGraw family as they are driving back. Uh, I'm thankful as I got to talk to Ben yesterday, and I can just hear it in his voice that it has been a time of rest and a time of growth as the sabbatical is designed. And uh, I'm just very thankful for that. Um, I pray that you would uh, get them back home safe. Uh, get this morning as we look at your word and your design, uh, I pray that uh, you would let me get out of the way and I pray that you would speak whatever you want to uh, this morning uh, in the way of your design for discipleship and, and the way we exist as families. God, we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, you can look outside, and you can see the first phase of a new building to accommodate some growth uh, that we're experiencing. It is uh, a first step. It is not done yet. Uh, there's still a lot to do. But um, you can see that. Uh, You can look around and you can see many small babies. And where you don't see a small baby, it's likely you will see a pregnant woman. And uh, I love how seriously this church body is taking the call that God has placed on us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And uh, and there's many that are doing that. It's it's beautiful. There's other families that are anticipating uh, conceiving uh, and or adopting more children. Um, There's a lot of kids here. And, and, and the Bible says that that's blessing. Uh, nothing else. That is blessing. And, uh, and this morning, uh, we're going to look at the question, do we want a church that is established and grown based on the greatness of man or the greatness of God? And it's real easy. Any Christian-y speaking church person will say, oh, God, I definitely want a church that is established and grown on the greatness of God. And in Psalm 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
And so as I look out at this uh, building that, that's going up and I see these families and these homes growing, uh, I, I'm reminded that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And it says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, my hope is that all these children that we're seeing, that we are equipping them and preparing them and teaching them so that they will have an impact on this city uh, of Greenville, which desperately needs uh, some change, and that also that it will uh, reach further. Uh, but the thing is, is that God will not build the house and watch over the city according to our plan. Like we don't go to God and say, okay, God, this is my plan. I want you to build the house and I want you to watch over the city. And so one of the theologians or commentators says, if, if we desire God's blessing, there's really no other way to get to that or to receive that other than doing things according to his plan and his design and his way uh, that exist in Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. In verses 3 through 5 in that Psalm 127, we're in Psalm 145 this morning, but I'm just talking out of Psalm 127 for a moment. In Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, it says, I'll let y'all turn there. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In this psalm we see children uh, explained as arrows, which if you see a warrior, he uses an arrow to accomplish something that he himself can't accomplish where he stands. He uses that arrow to reach out and accomplish something. And that's one of the views that we have of children is that we're equipping our children to reach out. We can reach so far with our faith and communicate as much as we can, but if we equip our children to do so, that, that reach is exponential and it reaches further and further. And here uh, it, it's, it talks about a quiver. And, and one of the things that we believe uh, here at Crosspoint is that it's a community quiver. It's not... This family has their quiver, they have their quiver, they have their... Yeah, that's true in a sense, but when you become a, a, a part of a local body, there is oneness in Christ, and there is unity in the body. And so it's kind of this community quiver that we have this responsibility for. And so this morning we're going to take a look at God's design for raising children in Psalm 145, and we're going to talk about how that impacts everybody. It's not just if, if you're like, well, I don't, I'm not a, I don't have a, fa- a family yet, or or you know, my, God's called me to a life singleness this doesn't affect me or whatever. No, it affects every single person who's a part of the church because the family and the church have everything to do with one another. And so we're going to talk about all that, but we're going to look at God's design for raising children in Psalm 145, and hopefully it will be one more small step in the direction of becoming wise warriors who, uh, as Spurgeon expressed, um, know that it really doesn't do any of us any good to have a quiver full of crooked arrows. So Psalm 145, go ahead and Turn over to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verses 3 through 7 says this. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. 
They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Uh, Spurgeon calls this particular psalm, this is a psalm. This is a song of praise. And what he says about this is, this one in particular, is a wholehearted, high-pitched crown jewel of praise. See, David was a king and he wrote lots of songs of praise. And he says this one, and the way that David articulates it, the way that he uses words to express clearly the greatness of God, makes this psalm kind of a crown jewel of praise. It kind of rises a little bit above some of the others that he's written, just in its full expression of the greatness of God. So, what we have to do anytime we see a new song, one of the things that the worship ministry does whenever we have a new song come about is we don't just say, oh, that sounds cool, let's play that on Sunday. We look at the song, we look at the content, we look at what's in it, we look, is it theologically sound, what's being expressed. We also look at, if we can, where was the writer when they wrote this? What, what was going on in their life? What's the background? And, and that helps us to be more wholehearted in our worship so that we're not just singing empty words on a screen. I want to know what where the content of the song comes from. And we ask that same thing from David here. Where does David come up with this? Why does he think he has the right to write a song about commending the works from one ge- of God from one generation to another? Why is that a good song? So two things we're going to look at this morning. This is a song about real life and faith. It's not fable. It's not just a poem that we can kind of appreciate and throw by the wayside. It's a song about real life and faith. And also... The greatness of God is a very real thing. It's a part of real life and faith. So let's take the second one first. The greatness of God is a part of real life and faith. Verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. The greatness of the Lord is a very real thing. Uh, When we sing of his greatness as we did this morning and how great is our God, sing with me how great is our God, one of the reasons I like that song is because the verses articulate on the particulars of the greatness of God. It's not just God is great, leave it at that, but this age to age he stands, time is in his hands. There's an expression and articulation of how great God is and what his greatness is made up of. There should be real life truth in our minds that goes with the words when we sing how great is our God. Saying that someone or something is great is of no value if there's no real tangible greatness to go with the title great. That sounds so confusing, and it's really not, so let me explain it. Let's say I go in for a job interview, and the employer says, Mr. Sutton, can you tell me about your qualifications? And I say, I'm great. <laughs> it's not going to go very far. If he says, well, Mr. Sutton, can you, can you explain that a little bit? I'm really great. Okay. Can you tell us about your greatness? Look, man. I'm really great, and my hope is that when I leave here, you go and tell your friends about how great I am. <laughs> There's nothing there. That's empty words. That's just, that's just, you're saying something that has no real substance. For too many of us, it's entirely too hard to articulate upon the greatness of God. For too many of us, it's too hard to articulate upon the greatness of God. We can't just say empty words. God's great. I'm a Christian. What does that mean? What's the substance there? Verse 4 says this. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. 
if we tell someone that God is great, and that's it, God is great, it's true, but there's more to be said there. If we tell someone God is great, they're likely to ask what? Why? It's not normal to tell someone that God is great and then you watch that person abandon all the things of the world and embrace a life of of purity and discipleship for the glory of God, mainly because you haven't told that person anything about really what God has done, what God plans to do, and much less who God is. They haven't heard that yet. All they heard is he's great. Ironically, one of the first questions that's going to come out of my daughter's mouth when I tell her that God is great is what? Why? The same way, the same question that comes out when I tell her anything at this point. Why? Put your trash in the trash can. Why? Go to bed. Why? It's good. I love how my daughter's questions keep me honest. One of the things we've been doing is at, at night, we'll read a couple books, and then I'm just trying to talk to her about faith and about Jesus and about the Gospels and about the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's plan and God's design. And she's two, okay? Uh, she's two years old. And I'm just trying to talk to her about these things and make it where it's normal that conversations are taking place. And uh, inevitably, she started this thing where she's saying, she goes, what's next, Daddy? And I'm like, oh, thank you, God. That is is sweet to hear that. What's next, Daddy? And when she says that, there's been a few times where, you know, I'll tell her about Jonah or Daniel. That's two we've been talking a lot about lately. And we'll be going, she'll say, what's next, Daddy? And I'm like, well, honey, I, uh, let me look. I don't remember. And it keeps me honest. It's good. And, and it's interesting, whether it's my child, whether it's someone else, when you tell them God is great, or you explain something, they're going to say, why? And that keeps us honest, and that's a good thing. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. The psalm that we just read, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, it does not say great is the Lord and half-heartedly, whenever I can carve out 20 seconds, to be praised. The greatness of the praise that we give to God is to aspire to how great God is, knowing it'll always fall short. What I'm saying is that we should not be half-hearted creatures in our songs. We should not write lame songs with the same chord progression and just the same line that's been used in a hundred other songs and think that that's some wholehearted new, singing newly expression of God. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The greatness of the praise is to aspire to the greatness of the one being praised. We should choose our lyrics carefully. We should choose our notes carefully. We should choose our transitions carefully. They should have thought because God is to be praised greatly. What does that have to do with explaining Jesus to my daughter? Well, this. I want to equip my daughter in such a way that when she is asked why God is so great, because hopefully my daughter will grow up, and at one point she'll be saying, yes, God is great, and someone will say, why? And I'm wanting to try and equip my daughter so that when she's asked that, she doesn't say, uh. I want my, my hope is that she will praise God greatly by being able to articulate upon the truths of God's greatness. What I mean is that I want my daughter to know that God is great, but I want God to be greatly praised by my daughter. So I want her to be able to articulate, why is God great? Example, I'm equipping her to be able to clearly express that God spoke all things into existence out of nothing. That shows a lot of power. I don't know anyone else who can do that. I want my daughter to understand that. I'm trying to articulate or help my daughter to be able to clearly express that God created all things in Christ, for Christ, and they're all held together currently in Christ. I want her to see the power of Christ in the way that everything exists. I'm trying to... Help her to be able to say that the, 
God flooded the earth according to his perfect justice, that he shuts the mouths of lions in Daniel's case, that he can command a big fish of the sea to swallow up a guy named Jonah, that God has the power and the greatness to heal the lame, God has the greatness and the power to be able to strengthen the faint-hearted, God has the greatness and the power, probably most importantly, that he sent his son who died on a cross and conquered death by rising on the third day, and her hope of conquering death lies only in the power and the greatness of God and having already done it for her. My two-year-old can't say that yet. I'm working on that. We're not there yet. This is a process that takes time, effort, and lots of patience. The other night, I'll be honest, the other night, uh, by the time we were ready to go to bed, she had it where uh, Daniel was being swallowed up by a whale. Jonah was in the lion's den, unfortunately for Jonah. Uh, The, uh, what was it? Jonah was in the lion's den. Jesus was eating bugs and honey, and John the Baptist was throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It was all mixed up. But at the end of the night, I was really thankful because she was able to say, tell me about John the Baptist. Tell me about Jesus. She knew the names, at least. We're making progress, but it takes lots of time, lots of effort, and lots of patience. So in short, when we sing, How Great Is Our God?, I want to be equipping my daughter in such a way that she will, in her mind, have an endless list of real-life things to attribute to God about his greatness. The greatness of God is not just an empty expression of christian speaking people. There's substance there. There's life there. His greatness is very, very real. The second thing we're going to look at is that the song is about real life and faith. Look at verse 4 again. We touched on this before about the one generation. This is real life. This is a song about real life. It says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. How is it that God has designed that a new generation hears about his mighty acts and what he's done and who he is? By God's design, a previous generation tells that generation about God. David, who wrote this psalm, was a man after God's own heart. And it's interesting, in Jeremiah 3.15, when God is calling his children to repentance, he says this. Just write down in your notes, Jeremiah 3.15, go read it later. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. If you have been placed in the life of a child, You've been placed there by God as a Christian person. If if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you've been placed there as one who is there to feed them with knowledge and understanding. That's God's design. It's beautiful. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7. God commands, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That's a part I didn't get for a while when Ella first came around. It takes diligence. You can't just once a week, hey, Jesus loves you. All right, good luck. (laughs) You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This is the way. I tried to put this in my own words and talking about God and speaking of His commandments that He's put on our hearts as far as the way that we work with our children and we walk with our children, it's the way you begin your day, the way you end your day, the way you spend your day, whether you're at home or you're out and about. I'll say that again. 
It's the way you begin your day, it's the way you end your day, and it's the way that you spend your day, whether you're at home or whether you're out and about. Do you know what that produces? Disciples. It does. That's God's design. That produces disciples. Now, I'm not saying that we have some little assembly line, do this, this, and this, and all of our children turn out great, and none of them screw up. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that this is the design that God has shared for the, the, uh, for the family to be a place where children are discipled, where one generation commends the works and the personhood of God to that next generation. Disciples are made in that way. Here's the catch. We cannot commend or declare those works and mighty acts that we know nothing about. We cannot commend and declare those works and those mighty acts and the splendor of the majesty of God that we know nothing about. That's hard for a lot of us. I think that probably hits home for many people. I'm aware that in this room, there are parents where you are of the first generation that you're realizing what God calls you to with your family. My father, I would say, um, is, 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 a sort of, is a patriarch. What God does over the course of history is he raises up patriarchs and matriarchs and he can change the course of a family. And so for some of you in this room, your parents may not have ever discipled you. Your parents may not have ever spent any moment saying, let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me talk to you about the gospel. Let me talk to you about how all this makes sense together. Your parents may never have done that. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that you're not equipped to do it. God equips us according to his word. And his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And he allows us to be able to have what we need to do what he calls us to. I believe that my father was a, was a patriarch that God raised up to kind of change the course of our family. And I believe my mother is very similar in the same way. And he, she really helped my father in that. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think that there's probably many in here who were of that generation where I was talking to a guy this last week where uh, he remembers very distinctly when his brother wanted to pray to receive Jesus, his dad picked up the phone and called the pastor. The pastor came over and sat in the living room and took care of business. That's not abnormal for a lot of people sitting in this room. But this is something that God calls families to. The discipleship is not left up to a paid professional. And so it's a really beautiful design, and we should probably pay attention to it because everyone else in Scripture, whoever took God's design and put it on the shelf and tried their own thing, it never worked out good for any of them. Just start in Genesis and start reading, and you'll see that it never works out. We just take God's design and throw it on the shelf, try our own thing. That does not work. We cannot commend or declare those works and mighty acts that we know nothing about. What David is expressing in this song, in this psalm, is a very high view of the beauty and greatness of God's design for the family to be the place where children are made into disciples. David sees God's design as a beautiful thing. He sees God's design for parents to take seriously the call to talk about God's greatness all the time with their children. David has gone to great lengths to express his humble gratitude for God's design that parents, particularly fathers, not provoke their children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And David understands that God's design for discipleship is far greater than anything he could come up with. One of the things we need to understand about David here is he's a king with a lot of power over the 12 tribes of Israel. David's got some serious sway on the way that people work, the way that they live, the way that the community around him functions. David has got some serious power at this point, and it's likely that this psalm was written at a point where his kingdom was doing quite well. 
David understood his place as a lowercase king underneath the king of kings. He got that. He saw that. And here's what happens. He was a king on earth who yielded to and submitted to God's design for discipleship and raising children. Because David saw his place as one who sits humbly under the authority of the king of kings. What David could have done is he could have made a decree that said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire a bunch of paid professionals and we will take our children to them Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and we will make it their responsibility to make sure that our children are discipled. David could have said that. He was a king with lots of power. David, however, did not say that. He said, I see God's design and it's beautiful. He doesn't just acknowledge God's design though. What does he do? He praises God for his design. He doesn't grumble about it. He doesn't like, uh uh uh, that is too hard. You don't know my 13 year old. He's a punk. He says, God, I see your design and I praise you for it. And look at this. He doesn't just acknowledge it, he praises him. God's design that mothers and fathers make disciples of their children was the very source of the reason he wrote the song. When we first, my goodness, I got to get a drink of water. I'm sorry. I wish this thing was straight because I could set this on it. When we first moved here, we had Chad and Samantha over for dinner. I think the Holtz were there too. I was not aware that Samantha was not real big on meat and things. And so I cooked a feast. We just emptied the fridge and we made uh, pork chops, ribs, steak, sausage. It was a nightmare for her. But Chad, on the other hand, was loving it. And at one point in the meal... Chad sat back with his belly pushed out, a little sauce running down his face. And he said, this meal's so good, I want to write a song about it. (laughs) That's what David has done here. David sees God's design for the raising up of children in one generation, commending the works of God to another. And David says, that's so good, I want to write a song about it. And that's what Psalm 145 is. It's a song about him seeing God's greatness in his design. And he wrote a song about it. And it's a beautiful expression. Look at verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works I will meditate. The glorious splendor of your majesty. That sounds like real pretty church language. And, and it's probably, we use phrases like that. How great um, thou thine, thou who thou art-ish. Um, all these phrases we use that become, you know, just kind of commonplace. David very specifically chose these words, the glorious splendor of your majesty. And what that is, is, is an expression of who God is. The glorious splendor of your majesty doesn't really go with anybody else. That's an expression of who God is. The wondrous works, I will meditate on your, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The wondrous works are what God has done. So to put it as simply as we can put it, we will be able to declare and commend God and his works to the next generation if and only if we meditate on who God is and what he's done. We will be able to commend the works and the glorious splendor of God to the next generation if and only if we actually meditate on who God is and what he's done. That's got to be a daily thing. Meditation is not just some Eastern mystical thing. When, When a Christian meditates, he doesn't sit down and try to empty his mind. When a Christian meditates, that person sits and they fill their mind with this word because it is in this word, this breathed out word of God, that we begin to understand who God is 
and what he has done. And it is then we'll commend that to the next generation. I love the transition that takes place in verses 6 and 7. Look at verses 6 and 7. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Who's speaking of God's might now? Who's speaking of God's awesome deeds now? Who's speaking of his abundant goodness now? The children are. It's a beautiful transition. The children are. What children? The ones who have been raised according to God's design. We will keep declaring the greatness of God, but now our children join in with us in pouring forth praise to God. God's abundant goodness and his righteousness is no longer just a source of my song. It's a source of my children's song. God's design is perfect. It's beautiful. God's abundant goodness is a source of their praise, and the result is a loud song. I love it. It says it. It says it right here. If anyone thought the music was too loud this morning, they shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The result here is parents and children singing loudly to God because he's to be praised greatly. God, it's good, man. God's design is so good. Two close issues to this. I want to I talk to two, two things because I think there's a possibility that there's two thoughts possibly going on in the room right now. One is this. A word to those who are single. I believe that God calls some people to a, an entire life of singleness. Uh, I believe that there are some people who are just single for a while. And a lot of times when it's coming to the end of your singleness, you're really hating it and you're frustrated. But this is a word to the single. Families and church have everything to do with one another. They do. God does not have a design to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth that exists outside of the family. It is within the bounds of a family. A, a husband and a wife who love each other can have children. And, and then it's beautiful. We also have adoption, which is just an unbelievably beautiful picture of how we are adopted in the family of God as a room full of Gentiles. It's beautiful. Families and church have everything to do with one another. The Apostle Paul was single, and it would be great to take your lead from him. If you're one of those people who's single, or you know people who are single, and you're wondering, oh man, are they not going to feel welcome here because we're all about family? No. You, you are called to that same ministry. Look at what Paul did. Turn to 2 Timothy 1, verses 3-7. through 7. This is where this message is not just a message for families. It's a message for the church. And the families and church have everything to do with one another. So for those who are single, we're going to look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul who was single, did. How he functioned. What his thought was. 2 Timothy 1, verses 3-7. through seven. T- uh, Paul's in prison right now. And he could be writing a letter that says, Dear Timothy, get me out. Help, rally the troops, but he doesn't. He loves Timothy, and he writes a, a letter to him that shows his heartfelt, um, just, this is a beautiful relationship here. So look at this, in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, 
as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Who, who is he thanking? I thank God whom I serve, as did who? My ancestors. Yeah, Paul was a single guy, but he acknowledges in his faithfulness and in his thankfulness here that faithfulness and thankfulness that did exist in his ancestors previous to him. It goes further. This is beautiful. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. There is a closeness in this relationship that is so God-centered. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. What is Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying, I know who you are. I'm close to you. I know your grandma's name. I know your mama's name. And I know that they were women of faith. There's no mention of, uh, of a father figure for Timothy here. That's possibly a reason why Paul and Timothy were so close. But Paul does not say, I am a single minister who's really good at doing what I do. I'm a Christian who can articulate things clearly, but I'm single, so I'm only going to focus on single people. And you know what? I think I'm going to start a singles ministry, and maybe we'll eventually even have our own little singles church. Paul's all about the family. So we can, if you're a person who's called to a life of singleness or you're in a season of singleness, take your lead from Paul. He takes someone who has, who's in a family that is blessed by a Lois and a Eunice who are faithful women, and he's investing in that person. The second word is to those who don't have a Christian family. It's almost like, okay, great, I see that we want to have a church that's made up of families that are worshiping together, but what if I don't have a Christian family? I've encountered many people who were redeemed out of a family that um, was godless, essentially. I've, en- I've encountered many people. There's people I know sitting in this room right now that were redeemed out of a family. They're maybe first-generation believers because their family doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, Vody Bauckham makes an observation in his book. That's really good. He says, The church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not do the work for them. Let me say that again. The church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not do the work for them. I would probably change it a little bit. I, if nobody, am going to change this guy who wrote a book uh, a little bit. In Ephesians 4, it says, it talks about apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers who make up a part of the church, and they work to equip the saints who are the rest of the church for the work of ministry. So the work of ministry, essentially what I'm saying, is not done by a bunch of paid professionals. It's done by the church who are equipped by a part of the church. That part of the church is equipping the greater part of the church. The saints are you. You might, I don't feel like a saint. I'm no saint. That's what this is referring to, those who are redeemed in Christ. That's who the saints are here. So where's the comfort come from if you're a person who doesn't have a Christian family? Right here. I hope you find great comfort in an entire church that's been equipped to take you in and walk with you. I hope you find great comfort in the fact that we do not have an expectation that you are limited to one paid staff member who's been hired to focus on your age group. Rather, there are a number of families who will have you over to dinner tonight and treat you like their own. So if you're a person who doesn't have a Christian family, or if you're a person uh, who is single, this has everything to do with you. The church and the family have everything to do with one another. It's God's design, and it's beautiful. Our greatest attempts, uh, it's just great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
our greatest attempts to try and match his greatness with our praise, it always falls short. But you know what that results in? That doesn't result in us turning our head and walking away. It results in more praise because he's so great. That it's, it's a vicious cycle and it's wonderful. All right, in conclusion, if the hired, paid, vocational ministers of the church are the only ones expected to meditate on and be able to articulate on the greatness of God, then it is clear that we've turned from God's design. As the church grows in numbers, families will become less and less in the way of spiritual health. Why? Because if you have one paid minister who, who does a lot of discipling and there's five families, he might be able to kind of work it, but if that becomes 10 and 20 and 30 and 40, then the families are becoming less and less in the way of spiritual health. But if families are daily worshiping together like this word says, daily commending the works of God to one another, daily declaring his mighty acts, daily meditating on his majesty and his mighty deeds, and singing together, singing together at home of his righteousness, then the transformation that we will see in the church will be hugely honoring and glorifying to God. A bunch of families equipped, seeking God's face, understanding who he is, understanding what he's done, walking together so that when you sit down to talk about God, it's not awkward or weird. It might be awkward or weird at first, but it becomes a a natural thing that your children will grow up where that's the normal thing for them. It will cause us to grow in our view of dependence upon God while inevitably doing a much better job of evangelism and disciple-making. An army of families equipped it is then that we will see the multiplication of faith in our generations and begin to really understand that pro- the promise that's attached to that fifth commandment that we will be, uh, live long and prosper in the land. God will be greatly praised as we stand with our children who we have brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and we sing aloud of his righteousness and of his greatness. Let's pray. Uh, God, our attempts to communicate your <laughs> the full extent of your greatness are feeble attempts, but I pray that we would be wholehearted in them. God, you are great, and you're greatly to be praised, and our desire is that you're honored in the way that we move forward as a church. As I see you blessing this place with lots of children and new families, we do not want to be a place that is working on the premise of people looking at the greatness of man. We want people to see the greatness of God, and so we want to operate according to your design and your will and your plan. And my hope is that we are walking together as families, helping one another, helping to disciple each other's children and teach each other's children, and taking that very, very seriously in a world where our schedules are filled with so many things that oftentimes the time with family is, is, is edged to the side more and more and more throughout the course of a week. God, we desire to fall on our faces before you, and we desire to be people after your own heart, just as you created David, who can express clearly that we see your design and we want to write a song about it. We want to sing loudly about it, and we want to tell our children about it. God, you are great, and you're greatly to be praised. I pray that as we give of our tithes and offerings, we do so with that same attitude. I pray that as we continue to sing and corporately worship you with one voice, I pray for that same attitude. God, you are wonderful. You do a work outside of us. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. 
You are a sovereign God who is merciful and full of grace uh, towards a very undeserving people. I pray that we would live in a way where we honor and glorify you. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.